showing with myself Nadina Regan. This is the podcast based in Dublin, Ireland, where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. It's been about a month since my last podcast with the journalist, podcaster and campaigner Una Mullally. This time out for our final podcast of 2019, I'm delighted to bring you an interview with a woman who has become famous all over the world. Samantha Paris served as the United States Ambassador to the UN from 2013 to 2017. She's now a professor with the Harvard Kennedy School and she's also the author of a new memoir, The Education of an Idealist, which tracks back through her career, taking us from her early days through to her progression into the White House and onwards. Samantha was born in London but uh, grew up in Dublin in her early days uh, until the age of nine, she attended school in Mount Anvil. And then in 1979, she boarded a plane with her mum and set out for a new life in the States. As she documents in the book, she didn't necessarily have it easy in those times. Her parents had separated and starting again made for a whole new set of problems. But she survived and persevered. First interested in sports, she then switched her interest to politics. She became a war correspondent, notably in Bosnia. She wrote the book A Problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide, which won her a Pulitzer Prize in 2003. She met Barack Obama in 2005, some months after Obama had given that incredible keynote address at the 2004 Democratic Convention. She served as a senior advisor to him until March 2008, when she resigned from his presidential campaign after a reporter quoted her as having called Hillary Clinton a monster in an interview, a comment for which she apologised. When Obama became US president, power was brought into the National Security Council, where she was appointed by Obama to serve as special assistant to the president and senior director for multilateral affairs and human rights. Her career has been startling, controversial, complicated and in many ways groundbreaking. She was one of those women that you often see in the photographs where there's a sea of men and one skirt and and pair of heels and you think to yourself why aren't there more women in politics and then you look at that and you think my god how hard must it have been. In the book she talks about those times and she speaks candidly sometimes very candidly actually, about the politicians with whom she spent a great deal of time. And I was really happy to see that in the interview that we did in a hotel in Dublin recently, she was pretty similar. She'd occasionally retake a sentence here or there to make sure her, her thought process was completely as she wanted. But generally speaking, she didn't hold back whether she was talking about Obama or Trump or Leah Varadkar. She also spoke really well, I thought, about what it means and what it feels like to be a woman in a position of power, not simply from a political perspective, but also when you're trying to deal with some of the issues that she was trying to deal with, which is very simply being able to have kids uh, when you're working in such a, an important and high profile position and when you're doing what she was trying to do, which is actually go going through IVF at the same time as being sat in the White House. A tough combination, if ever there was one. 
as ever, this is an independent podcast. It is done for love. So if you're enjoying it, if you want to see it continue, and if you'd like to show your support, you can do so very easily. Just go online, go onto iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a little review or a star rating. It is so appreciated and it is a very easy way to show some love. Also, feel free to get in touch on Twitter. Sure, love an old tweet. At Nadina Regan is my Twitter handle. And at My Roots Our Show is the show page for this particular podcast. I'm also on Instagram, Nadina Regan again, N-A-D-I-N-E-O-R-E-G-A-N. In a shocking development, by the way, there will be another podcast around this time next week, uh, moving away from our usual monthly cycle. But that is only because I have a great person coming up in the podcast that I really want to share with you early in the new year and I'll tell you a bit more about that at the end of this podcast but for now uh, this is Nadina Regan and this is my roots are showing this time with Samantha Power I hope you enjoy it Samantha Parrott, you are so welcome. It's a pleasure to meet you. Great to be here. Now, to kick off, of course, we're meeting on the occasion of the publication of your book, The Education of an Idealist. It's a big book. There's a lot to talk about in it. And so much, I suppose, with regard to um, both past events uh, with your work as ambassador to the UN, but also current events. But let's start by chatting a little bit about your background and your childhood, because you get into what it felt like to be a kid in Dublin and growing up with parents who were both incredibly smart doctors, um, but also a difficult childhood in a way as well. So, so what was it like back in the early days before age nine, you boarded that plane to go to the US? Um, well, I was blessed to to be the daughter to two hyper-achieving, um, lovely, charismatic people who fell in love in London and got married, everything seemed good, had me, and then my dad, who was had always been a, a great piano player and drinker, uh, began to really emphasize the drinking an awful lot and, and just got drawn further and further into pub life. And so I ended up spending an awful lot of time at Mount Anvil School for starters during the day. But then when my dad picked me up from school or at the weekend, I was at a pub called Hardigan's near Stevens Green, downtown Dublin. And so at a certain point, my mother came to this juncture where she wanted to leave the marriage. There was no divorce in Ireland then. And she and the man who's now my stepfather, Eddie, uh, boarded a plane and, and made for Pittsburgh in 1979. And, and I open all of this up in part because to tell an immigrant story with Donald Trump as president, I think is an important thing to do. But I also feel you know a lot of people are dealing with addiction and the breakup of uh, a marriage or a, a childhood that had felt idyllic and then some at some point shatters, but it doesn't shatter, in my case, in kind of linear ways, right? It's the move to America at one point felt like a wonderland. It felt glorious. Um, and it felt like I could have the best of both worlds, that it, I wasn't giving anything up, my Irishness or my home or my father. But then um, in, a, in a sort of cruel turn, my dad's drinking really 
um, worsened when we were gone. I mean, I suppose he didn't have a lot to kind of ground him in our absence. He'd given up his work, and and um, he ended up dying very, very suddenly when I was 14. And his death and the, the sort of self-flagellation I did, even though I was so young, thinking, had I stayed, if I'd been in the pub with him, or not, or taken him away from the pub, and and as many grown children do, you you uh, exaggerate your your agency and your power in that in that context. Well, he missed you, and you missed him. In the book, you describe you were so young, but you very fondly recall those days in Hartigans, where uh, he had a special seat called the seat of power uh, after his own surname, Jim Power, of course. Uh, so it, there's a real sense of bereavement coming through the book. And the book is actually incredibly honest. You talk about visits to therapy and it's quite a vulnerable book in that sense. You're not shy of acknowledging mistakes that you've made, whether in your personal life or in your political or human rights career. So was it important to you to show the flaws, to show the real person? It was. I mean, I, I think when I started, I wouldn't have known exactly the form that the book was going to, to take. But as I wrote a more traditional book initially, um, you know, describing what had happened with Obama on this issue or that issue, thinking, of course, that that was what people would be most interested in, I realized that that character was very one-dimensional. If you if you pick up in someone's professional, I mean, think of any of uh, any of us, right? No matter what we do in our lives, imagine kind of asking others to get to know you strictly on the basis of how you hold your microphone or, or how you ask your questions, right? It would be just such a uh, stilted portrait and, and a portrait without flesh and blood. And, you know, in truth, as I, as I began writing, I, I sort of became clearer about what my motivation in writing was, partly, I suppose, catharsis and so forth. But, but in terms of my audience, if I was lucky enough to have one, I really wanted to use the book to attract people or affirm in people their already existing desire to be part of public service. That was my goal, is to leave readers with the impression that they can make a difference. So it really was with an item making character who, for good or bad, happened to be me, but uh, to make that character relatable and real. You first met Obama in uh, 2005, I believe. What was and is it like to actually have time with him in person? I know your relationship changed over the years. You were very closely working together at one point. And then when you um, ascended to the White House yourself, you were a little bit more distant necessarily as he um, obviously was taking on the role of uh, US president. But is he as charismatic as he seems from the television? He's pretty charismatic. I don't know. I'd get in trouble if I said he wasn't. <laughs> but that, no. Uh, no, he is. I mean, he's funny. He's, uh, but he's very serious. And in that job, he was from day one. I mean, I, I describe election night and just an entirely different demeanor that he bore before the vote and after the vote once he realized it was on him. And, you know, we knew in advance that he was in a great position to win. And, and yet that didn't matter until you're the president-elect until the briefings you get about a terrorist threat to an embassy overseas or about how many jobs you're hemorrhaging, your economy is hemorrhaging each month because he inherited office, of course, at, at the worst economic, uh, during the worst economic downturn since the, the Great Depression. And you could just feel him bearing all of that. And that look of forbearance, I suppose, that look of, of gravity, 
never really left him. So even though there was a lot of play and still a huge amount of warmth toward me, toward Cass, my husband, who he'd known for much longer than he'd known me, toward our kids, who uh, he was incredibly generous with. Well, actually, your stepdad, Eddie, uh, your dad, basically, I mean, he asks you to call him dad. And there's a brilliant moment in the book where you have gone for dinner with Obama and a number of people and your daughter, Rian, is sat at home with Eddie minding her and uh, unfortunately he's not terribly good at uh, <laughs> figuring out where the breast milk, milk is and you're on the phone to him trying to explain how to use I think the various equipment and uh, at a certain point I think there's a bit of shouting going on between the two of you on the phone and the phone is taken from you and it's actually uh, President Obama and uh, what does he say at that point? He, I mean it was so surreal uh, my my dad was struggling to to squeeze what he thought was milk, but it was actually rice juice into a bottle. And as you say, it was escalating with my father over the phone. I was at uh, the White House and Obama happened to walk up behind me and he, and he says, uh, give me that, you know, speaking of the phone. And I just thought, oh my gosh, my Irish storytelling father is going to be given a story to end all stories here. And it's this like, is the president of the United States. So you can do this. He grabs the phone. Exactly. He's like, Eddie, this is the president of the United States. You got this. You've got this. You know, trying to calm him as he's calmed others in far worse circumstances. <laughs> but it was a beautiful moment. Well, speaking of more serious topics, Obama um, once said to you that you're not nearly as hawkish as people think you are. And uh, you would agree with that assessment. I mean, you talk in the book about how you had opposed the invasion of Iraq um, and really foregrounded uh, air power in Bosnia. And of course, you know, we're talking about a time you were UN ambassador between 2013 to 2017. So we're talking about the Syrian civil war crisis and many other uh, very serious situations around the world. But you know, where did you stand and how would you, I suppose, in a way, defend your actions during that period? Because a book, in a way, is a form of defense. You know, every review, every interviewer is going to talk to you, not just about Obama's decisions, but your own actions in uh, suggesting one move or another. So do you feel that you can stand behind your record on that, in that sense? I think it's a very fair question. And... As I think one of the reviewers said, I, I kind of give the reader in the book enough to hang me on and enough to hang Obama on in the sense that what I try to do is bring people into rooms that they may not get to spend a lot of time in to experience the dilemmas that confront you and the complexity of it all. We're in America, especially now, we're in a very black and white kind of binary moment, but that's not what it's like when you're when you're trying to figure out what to recommend to the president and in a far greater, with far greater uh, burdens upon you, what it's like to be the president and making a judgment about how to respond to a chemical weapons attack in the shadow of the invasion of Iraq, where um, so many U.S. troops have died, so many Iraqis have not benefited from your country's um, use of military force. So, you know, I hope the book isn't at all defensive. It it seeks not to be, but it does seek to kind of explain and not excuse, um, in my case, why I chose to stay in the administration, notwithstanding criticisms of me for being a hypocrite um, on the grounds that I had written and spoken out so often about how America should 
do something in the face of mass atrocities. And of course, Syria just burned on on our watch. But I explain all the things I advocated for that were paths that weren't taken by President Obama because he deemed them riskier than he was. To, he didn't want to incur risks uh, at that time, given all else that was going on in the world, things like a no-fly zone or very limited military strikes after the chemical weapons attacks. Um, he was at times close to doing, you know, different things that I might have recommended, and not just me, others, but. And the fact that our country uh, and the people in the United States and members of Congress and indeed so many of our allies around the world were unenthusiastic about doing that from his standpoint really makes a difference. I mean, it matters whether you have public support when you start because the way these things tend to go is they never go exactly the way you plan. And so while, again, given the, the, the consequences of Syria, the human consequences for Syrians, the refugee flow, the rise of ISIS, the way in which the mass migration from Syria arguably played, and played a role in Brexit and, and at least rendering mass migration a very salient issue. I mean, those are pretty steep consequences across the board. And so I, I think when we look back that we should have incurred more risk and gone further, but I also completely understand why somebody who's spending a day or two a month at Walter Reed Medical Hospital meeting with uh, American veterans who've been wounded in war, why his perspective would, would be different, and and why what, what in hindsight, of course, seems like something we should have tried at the time, given even in the wake of the gassing of 1,400 people, we had one ally, France, who was willing to stand with us publicly and be part of a coalition responding to that with military strikes. And we thought we many people learned from the Iraq War that when you go in with very little legitimacy and international support, that's also going to be a compounding and exacerbating factor on the ground. And so, but beyond Syria, and I, I mean, I say that recognizing that there is on one level no beyond Syria because it was so devastating. Uh, but I try to show in the book all the other things we were able to do at the same time, and and I, not to divert people from something of such high stakes, but to, again, show what it's like when you can't afford just to be responding or thinking about one issue when the Ebola crisis hits and you have to figure out, uh, for the sake of your own citizens, how do you prevent the epidemic from coming to America, but also for the sake of people living in those countries, how do you support those people on the front lines? And there we mobilized a massive global coalition to prevent a million people from getting infected, which is what the predictions had said was going to happen. And you write about that in the book as well. And all those chapters are so fascinating in how both how you respond, uh, but also how you're telling us that you're responding. Because at points I was struck by the feeling, oh, you know, I wonder, did she run these lines by the people she's talking about? You know, the specific sentences, w whether it's Obama having a chat with you or a dinner with you. How much talking did you do to people about this book? Because, you know, you are a diplomat or you, you know, that is your position in which you've served. So this book is not necessarily that diplomatic at times. Yeah, I don't know that I was that diplomatic times when I was a full-time diplomat either, but I try to make what can be hard issues accessible. And again, the way to do that is to humanize them on the basis of uh, 
human characters interacting, laughing even at low moments. Um, I mean, there's a, even in the Syria context, a moment where President Obama comes into the Situation Room and says to his National Security Cabinet, of which I'm part, I don't expect a, a solution out of today's meeting. And the head of our armed forces, Marty Dempsey, says, we won't disappoint you there, sir. <laughs> um, uh, and, and again, I mean, it's serious, so, so it's hard to, to there's nothing yeah, funny about it. But you have Syria. to have the humor as well. But did you, but did you run quotes, those quotes by them? It's really, no, no. I mean, I, what I, I don't ever, having been a reporter, uh, fully trust one source, if you know what I mean, even if that source is me or my journals or my memory or my husband. And so, you know, what I would do is just say, does this, does this sound right? Like, here's what I wrote down happened, or here's my memory of how it happened. But it wasn't sort of, will you vet my my quotes? It was, I'm I'm open to being told that my memory is imperfect, and and let's think this through together. So so I did want to reconstruct it accurately. In 2013, you became the 28th U.S. ambassador to the UN. How Irish do you feel these days? Well, I've been really touched actually by the response to the book and, you know, particularly Irish women of all ages, young women, the idea that my little story, you know, that it could be something that would offer solace for those, you know, in families of addiction or motivation for those who want to do something somewhere but are doubtful that they can make a difference. And and I think when I say that I have those doubts too, I still have those doubts. Barack Obama the most powerful person in, in the free world, in the world even, the most powerful person in the world, had those doubts and saw those constraints. And so to, to, to see that there's something um, that, I guess, to see Irish people see in me um, elements of my story that aren't just set in Ireland, but that are Irish, um, and in the humor in my family, in the storytelling... No, I think in the in the tradition that that many Irish are a part of of having a humanitarian streak, you know, I, the Irish the, this country has sent abroad to do humanitarian work per capita. I'm sure more uh, people than than any other country. Again, as a matter of population, and and so I love feeling claimed, um, and I want my children, Declan and Rian, to grow up feeling Irish, they do. My, my daughter said to me the other day, Mommy, someone at school said I wasn't actually from Ireland. <laughs> and I said, well, technically you're not really. Uh, and she's like, that's not true. I'm there all the time. And I said, well, not quite all the time, but we're going to get you there more and more because um, we go every summer, but not for as long as I'd like. And, um, and so I want, you know, this is, this is part of me. My, my cousins are... Uh, now my kids' cousins, and that you know my my children don't have any um, American cousins, you know family members, uh, their generation, their age, and so my cousins' kids are their cousins, and and that matters hugely to me, and it helps that my husband, who is a total homebody, that the only country he just loves visiting is this one, and so so it's it's deep in me for sure. Well, I presume you still keep a close eye on Irish politics. Um, of course, you, you're teaching yourself these days at Harvard Kennedy School, uh, amongst many other positions. Uh, what do you think of Leah Varadkar? I think that as a leader, for starters, on Brexit, he's been firm. 
He has represented this country's interests as well as one could have had reason to expect, I mean, given the difficulty of this moment. And I think he has tapped in from the very beginning to something that all Irish people know, which is you got to have friends. And the way in which he has cultivated the relations with other European countries where the EU has had Ireland's back, has had the Good Friday Agreement's back, I mean, that doesn't come about for no reason. I think the diplomacy that's been done, the, the sturdiness of the bonds that Ireland has with the EU, I mean... We've known how we, we've benefited economically from the EU for a very long time, but to see it in a moment like this where just there's really been, eh, at, the, at the margins, maybe a little bit here or there, but almost no wavering. And then, of course, as a symbol of the New Ireland, um, I mean, what a, what a message it sends to the world at a time when populism and xenophobia and even homophobia is is still ascendant in lots of places um, for for that to be the least noteworthy feature you know in a way of him I mean that just that Ireland just gets on with it and has passed through referendum you know the the, the first country to to legalize gay marriage I mean all of that and and the journey that Ireland has taken but then um, to have as its leader um, again uneventfully, uh, somebody who can stand for those rights and embody the the equality when you give people equality of opportunity to, to, to show what you can do with it. And the book actually really beautifully documents the struggle um, by yourself and, of course, in tandem with um, former President Obama to achieve equality for LG, LGBTQ people all around the world. And his very strong statements made in regard to that, which have been so powerful, um, are very well expressed in the book. I wonder, I can't not ask, uh, what you think currently of President Trump? I think that every day he's in office, um, that the norms of civility and kindness and I mean basically the kind of things we teach our kids share be kind be generous don't lie that all of those norms are being trampled in terms of foreign policy of course walking away from alliances cozying up to dictators breaking America's word on the Iran nuclear deal on the Paris climate treaty on the trans-pacific partnership on trade to the Syrian Kurds who took so many casualties as the kind of ground force to America's anti-ISIS effort it was a really damaging time, but the good Is news, it hard for you sometimes to watch the TV? I mean, it's hard because of the cruelty and the falsehoods, yes, because it's just shocking that the misinformation, the lack of shame, I mean, things, again, that I would have, when I was in office, would have accused the Russian Federation of carrying out you know, for example, demonizing immigrants or, as Putin does, demonizing the other as a way of diverting from what he's unable to deliver for his people. I mean, I mean, now to see an American leader doing that, to Putin lying about whether he's in Aleppo or not in Aleppo or his forces are, and now Trump just lying at will about matters of such gravity. But having said that, because it's a dark... <laughs> Diagnosis, of course, I mean, I think you really can't overstate the damage that he's doing. At the same time, the activation that his leadership has generated among women, among young people, 
people who never thought that, of running for office, who have thrown their hat in the ring in 2018, you know, in the, where we had the largest turnout since Watergate, but even just in the last few days, you know, in the seeing these historic victories in places like Virginia and Kentucky. Kentucky was won by Trump uh, by 30 percentage points, and we just elected a Democratic governor. And so the the response is of people who I think had been on the sidelines and been complacent about the arc of history, thinking it was only going to bend in one direction. Well, it turns out it'll bend the way a critical mass of people ensure it bends. And Would you go back? I'd love to go back and serve in some fashion, but I don't, I never think too far ahead. And right, and right now, given that activation is the prerequisite to changing things, I'm focused on using the platform I have to get to get people involved and and not simply swearing at Trump or sighing or wanting to throw something at the television when he comes on or block his tweets, but to do something more constructive to bring have you blocked him a change no I haven't no i i um i i I mean in order to figure out what he's about to do, it's as good a place to look as as any i mean l- listening to his secretary of state or his chief of staff or any members of his party doesn't give you any insight because it really is an almost like a royal court where you know you have to divine you know the will of the of the monarch uh, which is a, a whim and will that changes not only daily but but by the hour so it's extremely erratic and leaves I think our allies and our friends around the world very confused about where America's going. What do you predict for the future? I think this will prove an epiphenomenon, you know, something, there is a tide, it's not just in the states, of nationalism, of backlash against a sense that democracy was not delivering for enough people. Um, it's, it's ironic on one level because, of course, the party that uh, wanted to do the most for health care, to provide a, a cushion for people who... Um, were, who were losing their jobs or whose jobs were changing because of automation and globalization. That party is the Democratic Party, but it was Trump and right-wing people who um, who took advantage of that sense of vulnerability and that loss of dignity and agency that I think a lot of people are feeling. So if Democrats are fortunate enough to govern again, meeting people where they are, making sure that even if Republicans again continue to block um, some of what we need in order to cushion this transition period, um, that it's very clear, again, where responsibility lies, but but preferably where we're actually able to, to sort of get some programs and policies through where faith in democracy, which is now, you know, uh, has, has declined a lot in the states and around the world, um, the way that that will get restored incrementally will be when our institutions deliver better for people and and for their needs. But the idea that blaming the other and fueling nationalism and xenophobia, that that is going to help people who are getting left behind because of economic inequality or because of globalization, that is very far-fetched. And so I, I do think there's a period where people who feel left behind, who counted on Trump, to be able to deliver for them in a way that the, quote, elites have not, um, will see their uh, health insurance premiums go up, will see that the factories that closed down because the jobs migrated elsewhere, 
did not come back, could not be brought back, and we'll see that he fundamentally, for all of his rhetoric, doesn't care uh, about those people or doesn't care about formulating policies that would actually meet those people where they are. And at that point, that's the opportunity then for people to come in who actually do value human dignity and human rights. Well, I wanted to ask you a little question about what advice you'd give to your younger self if you could. And I know in the book you dwell on one of the toughest moments of your career when you had the Hillary Clinton incident where you were sort of quoted by a reporter somewhat off the record uh, using terminology about Hillary Clinton that you would really much prefer it wasn't in the public domain. But I presume that's one you would prefer to erase from the record. But are, are, is there something more substantial that you would say to your younger self? Is there some, is there, you know, if you were looking back again and, and you could say, reach out to that 20 year old or 24 year old and say, look, think of this or try this, you know, what, what, what would you say? I think I'd say two things, one personal and one, I suppose, uh, political. The the personal thing I'd say is nothing that's worth doing can be done alone. And I think, you know, for so much of what I write about in the book, so much of my career, I was sort of just bunkered myself on my own um, as a journalist, as an activist, as a teacher. And it was immensely gratifying, even in my low moments, like when I had to resign the Obama campaign, um, to rely on friends, to rely on the solidarity uh, of the people I got to know in, in the campaign initially, the Obama campaign, and then in government, to rely on women, uh, which I had never sort of sought out women as a women's network. I wasn't a women's network kind of person uh, until I really um, began to, to feel the effects of working in a very male-dominated uh, environment at the White House and then at the UN. And so the the sort of slogan that I came up with as I was writing the book is not lean in, which I also believe, but lean on. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's the personal counsel would be just to not be afraid of making yourself vulnerable to, to other people and, and to not go it alone and to know the the force that comes in in friendship and family and never take that for granted. And yeah, then, the book, in the book, you definitely take a lot of sustenance from that. And it's so telling the way, I mean, you were pregnant when you started at the White House and you soldiered on like eight months pregnant, just still going into meetings. And then you did IVF as well uh, there. And that, that must have been just so hard. Well, I think it would have been, again, if not for... The other women I met who were had had their own fertility challenges, um, and so I'd leave meetings, you know, in the situation room. I'd have to duck out early to go do like an egg retrieval, and then, you know, initially I was doing that all by myself. But then when I confided in people, you know, one of my female colleagues across the room would give me a thumbs up or wink or you know, and you and it gave it a kind of buoyancy and sense of hope and promise. Um, but the but the professional advice I'd offer. Um, is effectively don't make the best the enemy of the good. You know, that the problems that we confront in the paper every day, whether homelessness here or climate change or mass migration inequality are so big that you can get daunted really easily about one person's ability to make a difference. And it's really important to set your sights on transformational change, and I, I, I still believe that. I'm more idealistic now in a way than I was when I started, but it's to define for oneself things that one actually can do. And so, you know, in the face of the human rights recession, I would come back to the office and I'd get so daunted because even before Trump, 
we'd had 10 years of freedom in decline, human rights in decline around the world. And I'd come back and I'd say, surely there's something we can do. Like, we're not going to solve the human rights recession, but is there something we can do? And we'd come up with a, a campaign to get 20 female political prisoners out of jail and, and managed over time working with the families to get 16 of them out of jail. And, and that ends up, that small thing, I mean, big thing for those women, but small compared to the power, I guess, and the, and the uh, possibility of the U.S. government. But that is a virtuous cycle, because that then motivates you to try to do the next thing. And so figuring out what is one's own small thing that's actually within reach, and then that, that can motivate further. Well, certainly in the book, I mean, you say of uh, the UN, there was one observer who said its mission was not to lead mankind to heaven, but to save humanity from hell, which is a, a lovely kind of almost pessimistic, optimistic way to put it. But as a final question to you, uh, can you just tell me, um, are you happy in your life now? Are you in a good place? I'm in a um, conflicted place. I'm extremely happy having had both my kids while I was working in 24-7 national security jobs to be more the parent that I want to be, to be there at the Little League games and the soccer games for my daughter. And um, it's amazing. And it's and these years are fleeting. At the same time, when I see other parents, for example, being separated from their children at the southern border in the States, or when I see America, a country of immigrants, being redefined as a country of one race or one lineage, um, I'm, I'm alarmed. And so... In a way, the political and the personal are intertwined, I think, for all of us, because the world we want for our kids is one that will be shaped by the amount of investment we make in, in making things different. Samantha Parr, thank you so much for taking the time with me. The book is a fascinating read. It's called The Education of an Idealist, and I wish you every success with it. Thank you so much. Okay, so I know playing Snaps, the power is a bit cheesy, but genuinely that is the song that Samantha Bayer regards as her theme track. So there you go, little snippet from the 1990s with Snap there. That was, of course, Samantha Power, and my thanks again to Samantha Power for that interview. Her new book, The Education of an Idealist, is out now in all good bookshops. Remember, if you enjoyed this interview, you can subscribe to my Roots Are Showing with myself, Nadine O'Regan, on iTunes. And also, do feel free to leave a review if you enjoyed the podcast. We have a new podcast, as I mentioned, coming next week, can you believe? very fast with the wonderful Richie Sadlier. He is involved in the first fortnight festival in Dublin in January. So we're going to be talking about that and we'll also be talking about his brilliant book, Recovering uh, the Story of His Life and Career as a former professional footballer, now turned therapist and sports pundit uh, in Ireland. So yeah, very much looking forward to that. And all that's left for me to do is to wish you a very happy end of 2019. I will catch you again this time next week. Till then, this is Nadina Regan signing out. Catch me on Twitter at Nadina Regan or Instagram at Nadina Regan or at my show page at My Roots or Show. Till next time, do take care. Music.